Jesus told us to judge not, right? It sounds simple enough, but what does everyone get wrong about that little two-word phrase? Why does Jesus' command about judging come at just the right time? And how did Jesus apply his principles about judging to the woman caught in adultery? You'll find all that out today on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a newbie Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. I try to go to my local gym, Planet Fitness, a few times each week. As you walk through the main doors, up above it, it has the slogan, You are now entering the judgment-free zone. So anytime you're in a Planet Fitness, the idea is the ground on which you are standing is judgment-free. No judging allowed. Yet, as you walk a bit further into Planet Fitness, you're going to see a few more signs. One of them tells you not to drop your weights. In fact, the judgment-free institution of Planet Fitness has a name for people who drop their weights. A lunk. A lunk is one of those guys who lets the weights on the machines crash back down in a very loud and annoying manner. They literally have signs up describing what a lunk is and telling you, do not be a lunk. And then, the Judgment Free Planet Fitness has another sign. They have a dress code posted. I mean, not only would they judge you for walking in without any clothes on, they're even particular about what kind of clothes you wear. And I haven't tried going a month without paying my Planet Fitness bill, but I'm pretty sure the Judgment Free philosophy would not apply to skipping your payments either. So, what gives? Why is Planet Fitness so particular and opinionated and intolerant about certain things? I I thought they said judge not. I mean, judgment free. And yet, they not only judge you for certain actions, they might call you a name or potentially kick you out for not following certain rules. Well, the truth is, Planet Fitness must operate like every other business in the world. They need to maintain certain standards or requirements for participating in their services. The phrase, judgment-free zone, is just a slogan. And by the way, I actually like Planet Fitness quite a bit, and I think they have a good slogan. I know that when they say judgment-free, what they really mean is that they don't want members mocking someone for being overweight or inexperienced in the gym. Obviously, the gym is where you go to better yourself, and they don't want people expressing negativity over that. So I get it. I know I'm interpreting their slogan a bit hyper-literally here today in order to make a point. Judgment-free is a good slogan, but it's also a pipe dream. It's not feasible in real life. So why does Jesus tell us to judge not in Matthew 7? This is one of the most popular verses in the Bible. Christians and non-Christians, perhaps especially non-Christians, really like this verse. Now let's briefly switch gears. For many years, basically since the creation of the internet, the most popular verse that was looked up each year was John 3.16. And everybody knows John 3.16. I don't need to quote it for you here. It's one of the most succinct and simplified presentations of the gospel. But several years back, around 2013 or 14, another verse surpassed John 3.16 as the most looked up verse on Google searches. 
Something else became the most popular verse of the year, dethroning even John 3.16. And what was that? Matthew 7.1, judge not, lest you be judged. Now, around 2013, it's not surprising that this verse saw such a boost in popularity. This was a transitional era in America. There was a lot of pressure on Christians to accept new lifestyles, especially from about 2010 through 2015. If you were a Christian who held to biblical standards about sexuality, you were deemed intolerant. Sometimes you were called a bigot. And many would say to you, I thought Jesus said, judge not. When I was in college, and, and this was like around 2010, I had this friend who knew that I was a Christian and she was not. And whenever I said something against whatever she liked, she would say, the Bible says judge not. I heard that from her all the time. The Bible says judge not. One time, um, someone was asking me some questions about whether I believed in hell, and I was just explaining why I did, and she was sitting nearby. The Bible says judge not. <laughs> it was probably the only verse that she even knew. It's a very popular verse, because nobody likes to be judged. Now, the phrase judge not is only two words that are part of a larger verse, which is part of a larger subsection of scripture, which I would identify as Matthew 7, 1 through 5. And rarely does anyone read the whole section or even the whole verse. Many people think you can just boil the whole thing down to the central idea expressed in those two words, judge not. But if that was all Jesus was really trying to communicate, that we should never, ever, ever, ever judge, that we should never, ever, ever, ever make someone feel bad about something they did, that we should never, ever, ever, ever tell someone that they're wrong, then how does that idea square up against the rest of the Bible? For instance, let me read another quote from Jesus. John 7, 24, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Well, this complicates things, doesn't it? First, we're told not to judge in Matthew 7. Now in John 7, Jesus is telling us to judge, but with righteous judgment. So did Jesus contradict himself? And there are other places in the Bible where we could go if we wanted to complicate this issue further. In fact, that's exactly what we're going to do today. Let's explore a few different passages of scripture that talk about judging, and then see what conclusions we can draw from them. By the way, Happy Thanksgiving to everyone, and uh, I'm recording this on Thanksgiving weekend, and uh, where I am right now, I came over to my church to record, and it is extremely windy today. Uh, a storm is blowing in later tonight, but it is extremely windy where I am. I think it, at our church, something about perhaps the position of the building or maybe this alley behind me, uh, when the wind blows, you hear it. <laughs> so you might hear it today while I'm recording if you hear some background sound. Um, that's, that's probably what that is. And I, I can't really do anything about that. Uh, but I'm going to, I wanted to have this new episode out for the Monday after Thanksgiving. So not, not that this episode is about Thanksgiving in any way, but, uh, I just wanted to go ahead and get it out since I have this week of, um, some extra downtime, which gives me a little bit of extra time to record this program. And it's going to be a supersized program today. In case you haven't noticed, if you haven't looked at the runtime, um, I'm using this week to do an extra deep dive into this issue of judging and how also this kind of dovetails into some of the biblical passages on church discipline. I want to tie a lot of that together today. But first, and I'm not sure if we even need to do this or not, but let's just establish 
what it means to judge. To judge means to form an opinion or a conclusion about someone, and it can be done without even saying a word out loud. It, it's one of those sins that can be committed in your mind without anyone else even knowing about it. If, of course, you're judging in a sinful way. Because judging itself is kind of a neutral action, definitionally. You can make a, a favorable or an unfavorable judgment about others or their actions. Some say you can only judge actions, but that you can't judge people. And that's kind of a shallow way of understanding what it means to judge, as we'll see throughout today. Some will say it's okay to judge, but that you shouldn't be judgmental. And I myself have been guilty about saying that before. I don't think that's actually quite as logical of a distinction as it sounds, even though I understand the thought process behind saying that. But again, it's a shallow and incomplete picture. Basically, there's not really a slogan that sums up the Bible's whole philosophy in one brief sentence as far as judging. It's a big subject matter, and that's why this is an extra long episode that I'm going to need to spend dealing with it. And the nice thing about a podcast is if you start to get information overload, you can always pause it and pick it back up tomorrow or later on in the week. But I'm going to go ahead and, and try to shove all this into one episode rather than splitting it up across multiple episodes. I want to get it all in one because I want to try to be comprehensive here. And I want this to be a resource for people who are like trying to get the whole overview of what the Bible says about judging. And like I said, you can't really condense the Bible's whole philosophy on judging down into one sentence. And especially not the two words that everybody thinks it is, judge not. So like I mentioned before, the people quoting Matthew 7, 1 through 5, they only go through the first two words and then stop a lot of the time. Sometimes they'll quote the entire first verse and then stop. But the whole section here, or thought that Jesus is communicating, is contained in five verses. So let's read them all here. Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. What I find as I study these verses is that Jesus is not telling us not to judge, but telling us how to judge. He gives us some standards by which to judge others in a fair manner. A, a quick story that I always think about when I read these verses. In 2014, that was the first summer where I was responsible for my own yard. Now, growing up, I had many opportunities to mow a yard, like those times where my parents said, let's go outside and mow the yard. Or let's go mow grandma's yard. Or let's go mow the old neighbor lady's yard. And then I'd have mow money. And with that, mow problems. They say that after you mow your yard and survey the lawn of freshly cut grass, the fragrance of lawn clippings, and the knowledge that you don't have to do it again for another week, that nothing feels better than the satisfaction of a job well done. Well, as a teenager, I didn't really get time to experience that feeling. When I mowed the old neighbor lady's yard, she would give me money. And all that money kept getting in the way of noticing the satisfaction of a job well done. I would cut the grass, and then before I could even start to bask in the satisfaction of job well doneness, 
the old neighbor lady would slap this money in my hand, and suddenly, that's all I found myself thinking about. But all that changed in 2014, when I no longer lived with my parents, and I no longer lived in an apartment, and I suddenly found myself responsible for my own house with my own yard. And now I no longer had all these annoying hindrances of people giving me money to cut the grass. Now I finally had the privilege of doing it for free. In fact, not just for free, I got to purchase my own mower, buy my own gas. I was no longer one of those unfortunate teenagers who received money for my time and services in the hot sun. No, I was one of those privileged, lucky adults who was given the opportunity to do the same amount of work at a personal financial loss and fully embraced the satisfaction of a job well done without a silly monetary reward to distract me from it. I keep getting away from 2014. So what did I learn in 2014? Well, as I became responsible for my own yard, I started noticing yards in general, not just my own, but other people's. And and here's what I found out. It's so easy to look at someone's yard when, when the grass is getting a little long and say, gosh, they need to mow that. But when I look at my own yard, when the grass is getting a little long, it's very easy for me to say, maybe I'll get to that tomorrow. I can always notice other people's problems a lot more easily than I see my own. Or I make excuses for my own. Or I'm a lot more patient in dealing with my own. You see, all all jokes aside, the satisfaction of a job well done is a good feeling when you're done. When you're done mowing the yard. But when you're just looking at an overgrown lawn, you, you kind of forget about how good that feels. You start looking for excuses sometimes to push it off another day. Your laziness can kick in, but frankly, frankly, that personal laziness would not preclude me from noticing when someone else was getting lazy about their own yard. And I use that as a personal example of our own human tendency to, to heap judgment upon our neighbors for their decisions while excusing our own flaws and shortcomings. When it comes to something we've done wrong or, or gotten lazy about, we find ourselves becoming an expert defense attorney. We've got Exhibit A, Exhibit B, Exhibit C, ready to go to defend our reputations. But before we know it, we can slip into the role of a merciless prosecutor when someone else makes an error or slacks off. And this is what Jesus warns us about in the Sermon on the Mount. At the point that Jesus is talking about judge not, he is now in his third straight chapter of this discourse of how humans ought to treat each other. And as someone who has taught on this discourse in a sermon series before, I can tell you that this admonition to judge not comes at just the perfect time. You see, by now, Jesus has talked about lying, gossiping, making unnecessary promises, profanity, name-calling. And I remember as I, as I taught through these Sermon on the Mount sections with a group of teenagers, that I saw a lot of finger-pointing going on throughout the room. I can imagine that as Jesus said these things to the crowd, he perhaps witnessed the same thing. And so right here, three chapters in, he tries to rein in the human tendency to judge each other by a harsh standard, a standard that we often don't apply to ourselves. So again, after verse 1, the verse everybody knows, comes verse 2, where Jesus said, For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. In other words, the standard that you judge other people by will be the same standard that God judges you by. 
And we'll get specific in a minute, but let me just point out something that Jesus says a few other times in scripture. If you are harsh and unforgiving toward others, God will be harsh and unforgiving with you. See the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, 21 through 35. If you can't be patient with others, God is not going to be patient toward you. One of the scariest things I read in the New Testament is in the way Jesus told us to pray, which I think is also in the Sermon on the Mount. Forgive others as we would have God forgive us. Read that in Matthew 6, 9 through 13. We are to pray that God forgives us to the same extent that we forgive others. So what if you have some people that you're mad at in your life that you won't forgive? Well, if so, is God going to forgive you? I mean, that is a serious matter. I urge you to search your heart and see if there's anyone you're holding a grudge against. I I have to stop and do that every time I read these verses as I'm going through my own Bible. Here's a good rule of thumb when it comes to being patient and forgiving toward others. Be as patient with other people's mistakes as you want God to be patient with you in your mistakes. Actually, I don't know if I if I came up with that or if I read it in a C.S. Lewis book somewhere, but it's an idea that's guided me for a long time. Be as patient with other people's mistakes as you want God to be with you. I try to remember this when I'm getting frustrated with another person, when I'm getting annoyed. I think, God, have I annoyed you? Probably so. It helps me to have a good attitude toward another person when I think of things in that way. When my kid is being disobedient, I think, God, have I ever been a disobedient kid toward you? Well, you bet I have. It helps me to keep things in perspective so I don't get as harsh with others as I otherwise would be. Now, all of this is kind of vague so far, but it all ties back to this idea about judging. The standard that you use against others is the standard that God will take with you. So don't be harsher toward others than you want God being with you. Let's take a specific example now. Let's say that someone lies to your face. Now that can be really, really infuriating. Sometimes it's even obvious that they're lying. And it can be one of the most anger-inducing experiences to stand there and take it when someone is lying directly to you and you can't really do anything about it. But before you blow your top about it, let's just ask ourselves a few questions. Have you lied about anything recently? I mean, just reflect on that a few moments. The last time you got pulled over by a cop, did you say anything dishonest? Have you been 100% truthful with your boss about everything this year? I think it's fair to say we've all probably bent or stretched the truth before when it came to some kind of authority figure in our lives. Does, Does that mean it's okay for others to lie to you? Well, no, not at all. And if you can prove that they're lying, it's it's totally fair to call them out on it. I'm just saying, don't be more harsh with them than you'd like God to be with you in regard to the lies that you've told. Don't do what's tempting to do when someone does you wrong and call up a bunch of friends and trash talk that person. If you've ever told a lie before and got caught, would you have liked it if someone called up a bunch of friends and trash talked you? Probably not. So don't do that to someone else even if they were wrong. And if someone apologizes to you for doing you wrong, how quickly are you willing to get over it? Are you still going to talk bad about them behind their back a week after they apologized? Well, if, if you apologize to someone, how quickly do you want them to get over what you did? Personally, if I apologize to someone, I hope they'll forgive me and let it go right away. 
and that after after I've acknowledged what I did wrong and said sorry, that they won't even bring it up anymore. So if that's how I want others to be with me, and if that's how I want God to be with me, that's how quick I need to let it go with others. Uh, back to lying. If, if you're a parent and your 16-year-old lies to you about something and you get infuriated, I just want you to reflect on this question for a few moments before you blow your top at them. When you were a teenager, did you ever lie to your parents? About 100% of the time, yes, we did. I don't mean that we lied to our parents 100% of the time. I mean that for all of us, at some point, whenever we were teens, we probably lied to our parents at some point. It's kind of um, virtually universal across the board for young people. Now, listen, I don't want you to misunderstand me today. Am I saying that it means you just ignore it whenever your teenager lies to you or that you ignore it when others lie to you? No, no, it's okay to get mad about that kind of disrespect and it's okay to punish them. It's okay to punish them. They've done something worthy of punishment. All I'm saying is temper your response with the knowledge that we are all sinners, we have all lied in our lives, and we've all been given second chances after messing up, and that we all still have room to grow. And that means in regard to parenting a teenager, you should still have a talk with your teen about lying and give a fair punishment, but this will keep you from being overly harsh and saying something that you'll regret. You can be stern, but Jesus' warning about judging others will keep us from yelling and screaming at the kid or, or giving a punishment that's just way out of proportion to what they've done wrong. You basically ask yourself, if I was in their shoes and messed up in the way that they did, how would I want someone to address this issue with me? And that's how you can judge, call out a wrong behavior, knowing that the same standard that we apply to others can be turned around and used against us. We will have to make judgments and potentially punishments if you're a parent or in some other role of authority. So the way that you follow this verse is to hold other people to the same standard that you want God to hold you to. And let me read verse two again. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And then here's what Jesus said in the second half of that verse. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So what does the measure mean? Think categorically. Maybe someone does something wrong and you judge them because you haven't done the exact same sin as them. Okay, but still ask yourself, have I done something that's in the same category as what they did? Maybe someone cusses and you think, well, they must not be Christian because they use profanity. And Christians shouldn't cuss, I agree. But cussing is in the realm of impure speech. And there are many other types of impure speech in the Bible. There's gossip, slander, or again, lying. Have you done any of those things lately? Well, it doesn't mean that cussing is just okay now. It just means we shouldn't get on a high horse about someone else's impure speech if we have that same category of problem in our own life. Don't just think of specific sins and then think, well, since I don't do that exact same thing, I'm okay to judge them. Well, no, think categorically. Okay, many Christians have a problem uh, with homosexuality, and rightfully so. It's a sin according to scripture. But I'm going to just point out, homosexuality is a sin in the category of sexual immorality. And sexual immorality contains 
many sins. Just read Leviticus 18. There's a whole swath of ways to sin sexually. So if you're engaged in any form of sexual immorality, you really have no grounds by which to judge another person's sexual immorality because the measure you use will be measured against you. So think categorically. Again, and I feel like I keep having to say this so that I'm not misunderstood. This doesn't mean that we can never judge a sin again. That is definitely not what Jesus is saying because it would be literally impossible to go through life without ever making judgments on anything. When people read Matthew 7.1 and ignore all the verses after it and just want us to read Matthew 7.1 in a vacuum, they're asking the impossible. It is humanly impossible to live a judgment-free life. What Jesus wants for us is to examine our own lives so that when we do judge others, we do so fairly, not overly harsh and with a humble attitude. That's why in verses 3 through 5, he says not to fixate on someone else's speck or splinter, when you have a plank or a log, fix your own life first. In fact, just as just as verse 1 is a command to judge not, verse 5 also contains a command. Let me read it again. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now that's not like an option that Jesus gives you. That's actually a command. Remove the plank from your own eye. Fix the problems evident in your own life first. Perhaps noticing the splinter in someone else's eye just illuminates the problem in your own life. Maybe when you notice someone else's flaw, that's really an opportunity for you to do some introspection. It doesn't mean that you don't ever help someone else get the splinter out of their eye. It means that you need to make sure your eye doesn't have any splinters first. So ask yourself some questions. Do I have this same flaw present in my own life? Or... Have I ever had this same sin or flaw present in my life, even a long time ago? If I'm dealing with someone younger than me, did I do things like that when I was their age? If so, how would I have wanted someone to handle me to set me in a good direction? And finally, one last thing to consider is to think categorically. If I don't have the same sin in my own life, do I have a similar sin that I'm guilty of? All of these considerations will help us to judge in the gentle, loving way that hopefully draws people toward God rather than pushing them away. All right, so are we done yet? Well, (laughs) not even close. In fact, we only looked at one passage and it really provides a basis for everywhere else I'd like to go on this subject of judging and and tying that into a lot of issues of church discipline. Uh, However, I know I teased earlier that this was a supersized episode. Here's here's kind of what I'm thinking. Just looking at how far I've gone into my notes, how I've kind of paced myself thus far, this would be even even longer than I had planned. This is actually going to go on a lot longer than I thought I would. So here's what I am going to do. I'm going to go ahead and split this content up into two different episodes. So you're going to get uh, a little bit more today, but a lot of what I wanted to talk about, especially in the areas of church discipline and whenever you have a conflict with another Christian, I'm going to save that for the next episode. So um, the next episode, it won't be one of those that goes into, uh, we're, we're doing a series on the book of Ezekiel. I won't do that next time. What I'm going to do is go ahead and just save some of the content I wanted to share today. I'm going to save it for episode number seven. Um, But I just want to say a little bit more 
about judging today. I'm not done quite yet. I want to say a little bit more. Um, a lot of what I've talked about so far today has been about you doing some personal reflection before judging. However, sometimes we do need to judge wrongdoing. And, and it might require a response from us that's beyond a simple reflection. So I want to talk about some applications of judging others in more direct ways. Now, don't forget everything I said so far. All that is still relevant. All of that helps get our hearts and our heads in the, in the right space for addressing issues further. What I want to talk about, um, I want to talk about some of the areas of church discipline when you have a personal conflict with someone else. But first, let's just look at how Jesus applied all this stuff so far in the situation of the woman who was caught in adultery. This is one of the most famous passages. It's from John chapter 8. So I want to, again, I want to take how Jesus kind of applied these principles about judging. I want to show how he put them into practice in the situation of that woman who was caught in adultery in John 8. So it says in that chapter, just starting from verse 1, it says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Now that, that story is so familiar. I'm not going to go overboard in explaining it. We know that Jesus does not ultimately demand that this woman be stoned. In fact, the whole situation is a little fishy because I have a lot of questions about this. And I think Jesus did as well. Uh, first of all, where was the man? I mean, a woman can't commit adultery by herself. If we're going to follow the law of Moses here, both of the people who were committing adultery are supposed to be put to death. And then also, were the Pharisees like spying on a sexual encounter? I mean, how did they come upon this? And I don't know that the law of Moses had any stipulations about entrapment, but just the lack of detail about the situation, like where's the other participant in this adulterous affair, it suggests to me that the Pharisees were maybe more involved in this encounter than just mere observers. Perhaps they had concocted the situation in some way. And to give this situation some greater context, it must be brought up that the Jewish people at this time, they were under the governance of Rome. And as part of that subjugation, they were not allowed to put people to death, even when they wanted to. The Sanhedrin had to seek Roman authorities' permission to execute Jesus. If you remember, uh, it, you know, at the end of the Gospels, the Sanhedrin had to seek Roman authorities' permission to execute Jesus. They couldn't even carry out an execution all on their own. So regardless of what the law of Moses said, the Jews at this time did not have the authority to carry out punishment over adultery. What they're asking Jesus to do here is break Roman law, something that he did not have a legal right to do, and it's not even clear that Jesus had the moral right to do that. So here's how Jesus responds. The eternal Son of God, who has always existed and always will, who never committed a single sin, never did anything wrong, was only on this earth as a courtesy to evil mankind, he decides to humble himself before these accusers. 
He gets lower than they are and stoops down before responding. Um, my aunt, she was a principal of like an elementary or middle school when I was a kid. And, and before that, she was a high school teacher. And I remember visiting her one time at her office and uh, she was telling me that like she had to discipline some kid and this kid was a bit taller than her. And, and she said, it's very hard to discipline a kid who is taller than you because um, they often won't take you seriously when, when uh, they're looking down on you. So she showed me a chair that she would sit the tall kids in <laughs> so that she could properly convey her authority when disciplining. It was kind of a psychological thing. But uh, that little tip, uh, just about like height differences or being higher than someone or lower than someone, that little tip's just always kind of stuck with me. And, and it comes to mind here too. Except that when Jesus, um, Jesus actually here does the opposite of what would be conventional wisdom. When Jesus wants to respond to this challenge from the Pharisees, he doesn't try to tower over his opponents. He literally lowers himself, humbling himself by stooping down. And I've just always found that fascinating. It, it, it perfectly syncs up with what, what I told you in the previous section, that before judging someone else, always take a humble attitude about it. Even Jesus did. And if, if Jesus would do that, then we should too. Um, when I imagine this visually, I always imagine that the Pharisees have like thrown this woman to the ground. And so that when Jesus gets down on the ground too, in a sense, he's bringing himself physically down to her level before speaking a word of judgment about her actions. Just, li just like I told you before, if you have to judge another person's actions, kind of put yourself in their shoes. Okay, just ask yourself, how would I want someone to correct me if I had done what they did? Now, we know that, that Jesus here, um, he says that he who is without sin casts the first stone. Very familiar passage here. And that then the Pharisees walk away because they realize they, they don't really have the moral authority to condemn her. And so I just want to touch on the last few verses, though. Um, the last verse here from this section, it contains two important pieces of information about judging. And I want to make sure we notice because people tend to notice just one of these pieces of information or the other. I want to make sure today that we that we notice both. It says in John 8, 11, after after the Pharisees have kind of walked away, it's just Jesus and the woman left. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus said he does not condemn her. He will not put her to death. Jesus technically was himself without sin. So perhaps he could have, you know, if not for the whole Roman subjugation thing, he could have condemned her, but he didn't. And then he says this, he says, Go and sin no more. And as Christians, I just, I really want to make sure we notice both of those things. That he didn't say, go away and adultery doesn't really matter. No, he didn't say that. Jesus recognized it as sin. Adultery is sin. But adultery is also deserving of death, according to the law of Moses. So why didn't Jesus stone her? Or perhaps petition the Roman government to execute her? Well, I have my own thoughts on that. Um, I, I might save them for a future episode because this whole story has a lot of juicy details that I, I don't think I'll be able to get into today. Let's save that for another time. But this time, I just want to take away two big ideas. Jesus shows her love, even in her sin, but without approving of the sin itself. So just let me ask you a question. 
did she walk away from this encounter more drawn to God or did Jesus's actions push her away from God? Well, she was obviously drawn toward God because of the love and kindness and the gentleness that Jesus showed, but without excusing her sinful behavior. So I, I think it's likely that she even got saved at some point that we'll see this woman in heaven. When we have to judge someone or perhaps even hold them accountable in some way, let us do so in a way that draws them closer to Jesus. Uh, if, you're, if you parent a child who is old enough to comprehend God, let your discipline of that child be discipline that holds them accountable for what they did wrong, but without being scornful and blowing your top over their actions. You know, and listen, even if you're a good parent, your kid is going to walk away from you angry at times, but, but don't let them walk away feeling unloved. You know, if you have to punish them, don't just yell and scream every time you punish them. Uh, in general, you want your kid to walk away from a disciplinary encounter knowing that you still love them, that God still loves them, that there's a path forward if they'll take it, that you're rooting for them to do better, and altogether that they'll walk away drawn toward God and you rather than repelled or feeling rejected by God and you. And as much as possible, bring the gospel into it. Bring the idea of redemption and forgiveness into it. Be willing to give a second, <laughs> second chance, third, third, fourth, and fifth chances. You know, acknowledge the sin. Don't downplay or ignore it, but be, just be, be willing to, um, to overlook it and provide a path forward. And, and I think maybe right here, that's where I should stop for today. Because like I said, I, I'm not even halfway through all the notes that I had on uh, judge not and church discipline and all that. There's actually a lot more where I want to take this idea of judging and show how it, how it honestly applies in uh, different areas of life. So I got a little bit preachy there about parenting. It wasn't my intention to, but I'm just trying to find different avenues by which to apply these principles today. So here's what I'm going to save for next time. I'm going to talk about two things. Church discipline. Uh, that is an area where we are not just um, allowed to judge, but where God has told the church to judge. We, he has committed to us the practice of church discipline. And yet I very, very rarely see churches actually put those principles into practice in modern times. So we need to talk about that. We're going to go through 1 Corinthians 5. And then also look at Matthew 18. There's some verses there uh, that are some direct quotes from Jesus about what to do when you have a personal conflict with another brother or sister, another fellow Christian. Okay, so we are going to talk about that next time. I just feel like if I kept going today, this program would probably be more than an hour and a half. <laughs> I know I said it with a podcast, you can pause it and all that. I know I said all that, but honestly, that's that's just too much for one week. So, so we're going to stop here for today. Uh, before I go, uh, let me just tell you about our other podcasts that we've got. Um, besides the cross references, if you, if you like fake news, then you actually don't want to check out this other podcast I've got. It's called fake news, a fiery, but mostly peaceful podcast. And on that weekly show, we look at the past week of news stories through kind of a, a meta narrative of how the media covered those stories so it's not a Bible study. It's more of a, of a current events type of show. If you don't like fake news, then you definitely don't want to come listen to it. But if you like laughing at fake news, come join the fun with new episodes of that one each Friday. 
And if you have a question on this lesson or any of the podcasts we've done so far, leave a comment or shoot us an email, crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. I'd be happy to take questions or recommendations on subjects that you think I should tackle in the future. Or if you want to say something friendly or send hate mail, I'll take it all. It's at crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. So don't forget next time we'll be, um, we won't be going into Ezekiel chapter two just yet. I want to spend one more week before I go into that on uh, judging. And that episode will be called Judge Not and Church Discipline. So it is a part two of what I'm talking about today. It's definitely going to be a part two. Um, And then in episode eight, we'll get back into Ezekiel chapter two. So again, just to recap briefly, we are not commanded to refrain from judging. Okay, that is not what the Bible says. What the Bible says is how to judge. And so the first thing that you should stop and do before judging, just take an inventory of your own life. Ask yourself, hey, have I ever done this thing? Um, Do I do anything in the same category as this? You know, you just basically make sure that you have cleaned up your own life before you try to clean up someone else's. And, And when you do have to deal with someone else, you want to do so in a gentle and humble way, but not a haughty, know-it-all way. And so, trust me, if you point out someone's flaw, if, if you point out someone else's flaw, and if you even 10% have that same problem in your own life and you don't acknowledge that, they're not going to listen to anything that you have to say. So you want to be very careful um, when, when talking to someone else about one of their sins, one of their flaws, anything, Make sure you have cleaned out your life in that area first. If you've committed that sin before, you know, you want to bring that into it and be like, hey, I've done this same thing. Here's what helped me, um, you know, in a situation in life where you need to address that with someone else. And, and there's, not, there's not a whole lot of situations where you do need to be pulling splinters out of other people's eyes. I mean, it's not something you just do on a daily basis, okay? But if you're an authority figure of somewhat, in some way, that is going to come up. And that's actually, that's where we're going to go next time too. We'll talk about church discipline next time on this podcast. So I hope you will come back. Stick around. Um, That'll be next week. That episode will be coming out. And you definitely want to listen to that one if you've listened to this one, because this one's the first half. Uh, This one is a lot of the setup. Next time, we'll have a lot of the payoff. So I hope today, though, you have a more mature understanding of that phrase, judge not. Okay, because most people just want to say judge not and leave it at that. But that is not what God told us. So um, that's not even actually humanly possible. So if you want to obey God, you got to understand the Bible doesn't say not to judge. The Bible actually tells us how to judge. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cross References podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you, do not be a lump. 